Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcasts on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I'm back to presenting this podcast, which this week will focus on the 2019 European elections. We've been told over the years not to worry too much about European elections. They tend to be national rather than European, tend to have very low turnout, and the stakes have often been extremely low as well, as the institutions in Brussels have continued onwards, dominated by the mainstream parties and shielded from the big ructions in national politics which have gone through our continent. But this year, we hear that things could be different. Firstly, the elections look less national than they have in the past because a coalition of populists from Matteo Salvini in Italy to Viktor Orban in Hungary have been working with Steve Bannon to try and turn the elections into a platform for resetting the European Union and in fact trying to re- reverse it from, in, from the inside. Secondly, the turnout might not be as low as it normally is. One of the things which we learned from the Brexit campaign is that three million voters who did not normally participate in elections were targeted by the Leave campaign, which is one of the things which is said to have changed the outcome of that election. And we could see a big battle for selective mobilization taking place this year. And thirdly, the stakes could be much higher because the European Parliament is going to be in a position to affect lots of different policy areas from Europe's ability to sign trade deals, agree a budget for the next seven years, to selecting the personnel in the different EU institutions. In order to allow us to understand what's going on, ECFR has started a major research project and we have a team of researchers in all 27 EU member states that's been led by Susie Dennison and Pavel Zaka who have just brought out a big new report called the 2019 European Elections, How Europeans Plan to Wreck Europe and What Can Be Done to Stop It. This work, which they're doing, shows what the battleground looks like in every single member state of the European Union, how the EU institutions work, and has some big thoughts on how the battle could be shaping up over the idea of an outward-looking Europe that's able to defend itself in a multipolar world. So to allow us to understand what's at stake in these elections, I'm very pleased that both of the authors are joining me. Susie Dennison is the head of ECFR's European Power Programme and a senior policy fellow based in Paris. And Pavel Terka is the coordinator of that programme, also joining me down the line from Paris. So Susie and Pavel, we've been told by many people that this year's European Parliament elections are a make or break issue for the for the future of the European project. Why is that so? I, most people learn that European elections are, are quite sort of national, low turnout, low stakes affairs. Why is 2019 different? Well, 2019 is different because uh, the political landscape uh, in, in which these are taking place is totally different. Already, we have a European Parliament in which just under a third of the seats um, are, are taken by um, 
people who are sceptical about the European project. After Brexit, um, if that takes place as expected at, at the end of March, um, we will be facing a situation in which um, the, um, despite the kind of the anti-EU forces from the UK um, leaving, and despite the sort of um, EU-wide ramifications um, of, of that debate about why the UK is going, the, the proportion of seats held by anti-European um, MP, MEPs is set to grow. And already we're seeing um, in the polls which are taking place um, the likely proportion rising um, for, for these anti-European parties, um, up from around 23% um, earlier this year to more like 28% at the moment. So the, the elections are taking place against a sort of a very um, difficult political backdrop. Um, we also have a situation in which now um, around the EU council table, so where um, the government's uh, ministers and head of states take decisions uh, on, on behalf of their member states for the direction of the EU, there are a number of anti-European governments, from the Hungarian um, uh, government, the Italian government, uh, to other countries such as the Czech Republic. So um, the, against that situation, um, it becomes increasingly difficult for the governments who are still pro-European to ignore the anti-European voices um, back in their domestic political context at home. So the sort of the second level at which this is a really um, important election is the platform that this gives to anti-European voices in each of the um, 27 um, member states to push um, their their agenda and, and to put increasing pressure on their governments um, at the European Council table not to take um, Europe forward to, towards common positions. Um, and then the third way in which this is um, really quite important is in, in terms of procedure, if the European Parliament does turn out, as we expect, um, to have over a third um, of anti European um, seats, then there are a number of quite technical procedural consequences, which will mean that on areas such as trade, the um, multi-annual financial framework, the next budget um, for the next seven years for the EU, um, common foreign policy positions, um, the ability of the European Parliament to take common positions on breaches of the rule of law within the EU, all of these have the potential to be blocked by this blocking minority, um, which could create a, a type of paralysis within the European Parliament for years to come, which will mean that the, the anti-European argument that Europe is incapable of reform, uh, it's, it's simply not true that it's an imperfect body that, that sort of can do better to deliver on the issues which concern European citizens, will be proved true. Um, so yes, basically, um, it's quite a worrying picture. Right. So you and, and Pavel have been leading a, a team of researchers in all 27 member states to look at what the different national situation looks like. And I like to kind of go into this in uh, through three prisms. One is to sort of get a better understanding of what it is, uh, which are these new parties and forces em- that are going to emerge, um, which will be represented and which will run the European Parliament. Secondly, what kind of ideas do they have? And thirdly, what sort of mechanisms do they have to actually make those ideas uh, take place? So maybe the, the first thing we can do, Pavel, is to start with the top parties that are going to be elected. I think one of the most striking things in your report is this table where you look at the top 16 national parties. And I think anyone who's followed the European Parliament for the last few decades is used to seeing either Social Democrats from the S&D group or uh, Christian Democrats from the European People's Party uh, dominating the, the league tables for the number of seats. But the top 10 seats look very, very different from that this this time round. 
Um, why don't you tell us uh, who the, the top 10 biggest political forces are? Yeah, exactly. So apart from the fact that the anti-European forces will get much stronger in this European Parliament, one of the other major changes that we'll see is that the traditional coalition of the center-right and center-left, who in the European Parliament are grouped uh, in the European People's Party and uh, Social Democrats, for the first time, they will get less than uh, 50% of uh, seats, which will create a pressure for them to uh, reach out to other pro-European forces. But uh, nevertheless, it will be much more difficult to get compromises on uh, individual issues. Uh, and uh, when we look at the list of the major national parties to be represented in the next European Parliament, CDU, the German Angela Merkel's party, is still supposed to remain the main national party represented in the parliament, but just behind them uh, we'll see Matteo Salvini's uh, league uh, with uh, projected 29 seats uh, as against 30 seats of, of CDU, CSU. And the third uh, major national party uh, will be uh, Law and Justice from Poland. Just behind it, Movimiento uh, Cinque Estrellas from Italy. The next few are equally challenging. The fifth is the, the National Front in France, and then the sixth party is the, the German Greens, and the seventh party is En Marche, uh, Macron's party. So apart from the CDU, none of the top seven parties come either from the EPP or from the S&D group. Which is, in a way, neither good nor bad as such, because, as you said, we also see the Greens and uh, La République en Marche uh, in the first uh, uh, seven, which shows that this is a moment of disruption in the European uh, politics. Hopefully, it could become a creative disruption, but uh, uh, if we are publishing this paper, it's because we are afraid that it could uh, rather become a destructive disruption this time. And what you found is that if you look around at all the 27 countries, there are kind of political realignments going on. And in many countries, the parties that have traditionally done well are going to do much less well or, and sometimes disappear completely and in other cases be overtaken by new parties. As you noticed, we, we are using a term anti-Europeans as well as nationalists and Eurosceptic uh, parties. This is because it's, it's difficult to find one word to describe the multiplicity of uh, uh, positions. And actually, in the European Parliament currently, the parties who are either very critical towards the EU or opposing European integration, they are dispersed among different groups. Uh, uh, on the far right, you have two different groups. Apart from that, you have Eurosceptic uh, conservatives, but also you have some parties uh, on the far left who also could be considered uh, anti-Europeans. And you can see that on several issues that the coalition between all of those parties could be tricky because, for example, the radical left, while shares some trade opening criticism with the far right, they are at the same time uh, critical of the government of uh, of Viktor uh, Orban on the rule of law uh, issue. So it's we are never saying that all of those parties share the same dangerous agenda. Uh, what we rather point out uh, too is that with their strengthened representation in the European Parliament, they could uh, decide to have some tactical partnerships and uh, agree on the various elements uh, of the agenda, which are not, not necessarily that important for them. 
I think maybe maybe it's worth making a point that we know, we know that there are a number of new political parties um, that, that are going to be participating in, um, in in the European Parliament, and it looks very likely they'll gain seats. It's very unclear how some of them will align um, with with others because precisely because they are new. I think the other big unknown about um, the potential for coalitions is what the kind of the the mainstream parties and centre parties are going to do because what our paper tries to lay out one of one of the kind of the major risks is around. Um, the centre-right being kind of captured by this anti-European force and deciding to work with parts of that agenda in the way that we have seen sort of in a growing way over migration policy in the last few years, this, this kind of sense that the only way to deal with this kind of growing anti-European force is, is to kind of cooperate with it. I think that's um, what we're trying to highlight in the paper is, is, is that that is one of the major risks um, for Europe um, because it, it is precisely that kind of horse trading on individual policies which could push some of the ideas um, that the European parties are putting to the fore. So what do these parties actually want to do? One of the great things in your um, report is a box on page nine where you talk about the anti-Europeans manifesto. And there, there are lots of quite surprising shocks to the EU's ability to defend itself in the world, ranging from the fact that a lot of the countries want to compromise the EU's common foreign policy on Russia and overturn sanctions, the fact that a lot of countries want to withdraw or weaken NATO, a lot of countries want to end up, you know, weakening the, the, the EU institution, blocking all trade deals, close, stopping freedom of movement within the European Union, hampering global efforts to curb climate change, spreading intolerance and nationalism across Europe, with uh, with illiberal democratic policies, I mean, how much ability do you think that these parties are going to have to actually make those things happen if they do end up getting the sort of uh, support that you're talking about? I mean, for me, in terms of the um, the EU's kind of force as a global actor, is the sort of the headline idea, which I think is one of the things that does unite um, a lot of the anti-European forces, of this um, this kind of desire to a return um, uh, to a Europe of nations, um, rather than the um, retaining the ambition of being uh, a cohesive whole. Um, and I think that applies as much to um, the way that Europe engages on the global stage as it does to health, and, and you know, and perhaps more actually. Um, than to ha- um, some of the internal e- intra-EU mechanisms um, such as the euro um, uh, and freedom of movement where there is kind of more attachment among the anti-European parties because they can see the very tangible benefits of that. Um, so indeed, um, under that sort of major um, headline shift in, in, in ambition that, that they're pushing are some parties blocking uh, the idea of, of, of common external trade agreements and, and this goes from sort of parties like Five Star Movement um, right across to the right um, um, with Rassemblement National, uh, back to the left with La France Insoumise. I mean, th- this kind of um, anti-trade idea, this fear about the kind of the impact of globalisation is, is is very big there. And and perhaps um, more of a challenge for um, for pro-Europeans um, are on some of the kind of the areas where um, we have seen effective EU common positions, such as example on, on climate change with the Paris climate deal, um, where you've got a number of specific parties from the Danish People's Party to the Conservative People's 
People's um, Party of Estonia, um, who were calling um, for withdrawal from these multilateral um, agreements uh, at an EU level, and, and this returned to the idea that um, individual countries should decide um, their common policy. And then, indeed, you do have very specific suggestions, such as the abolition of um, sanctions on, on Russia, um, where you've got a whole range of parties from the Freedom Party of Austria, La Liga um, in, in, in Italy, Alternative for Germany, pushing back against um, this very specific proposal, uh, which already, as we know, has, has kind of been causing some di- division between member states um, up to now. So I think that um, the, the potential is very real um, for us to see problems on a, a whole number of these files um, after the European Parliament election. Of course, it's, it's worth underlying that European Parliament is just one of several institutions in the uh, European Union's structure and not, uh, not the strongest uh, of all of them. And actually, the rule of law is one of the few mechanisms where one third minority can already stop the process in the, the Article 7 mechanism within the European Parliament. So the Article 7 mechanism is the mechanism which people use to try and take action against the Polish and Hungarian government's uh, attempt at undermining the rule of law domestically. Yeah, so on, on most other issues, you need majority, meaning one half of the seats in the European Parliament. But despite that, that requirement, uh, a strong representation and some strengthened unity among the anti-Europeans in the next uh, European Parliament could already set a tone of, of several discussions on, on trade, migration, sanctions, rule of law, climate. It's worth remembering that, for example, on sanctions against Russia, the economic sanctions uh, are currently extended until the end of uh, July uh, to the 2019. Then the Council will have to uh, agree again on, on uh, them. So change discussion within the next European Parliament could uh, translate into a different tone of discussions in the European European Union at large uh, with uh, effect on how the Council can uh, act on several points of the uh, agenda. And also because uh, apart from the European parliamentary elections, we will also have several national parliamentary elections in the next couple of months, where, for example, in uh, Estonia uh, or Slovakia uh, or Denmark, you could even see uh, the um, anti-European forces entering the national governments, which could, would further limit the council's uh, room for manoeuvre. There's a great table as well showing what sort of procedural levers the, the anti-European parties would have from being able to block the Article 7 procedures you talked about, how they could affect the nomination of the European Commission, the European budget, passing all these trade and association agreements we talked about. So you can see that some of the kind of dangers um, out of all that. But I suppose the, the big question, having looked at a lot of the challenges, is whether there's anything that can still be done to, to stop this from happening, which is your, your subtitle. Susie, do you want to lay out what you some of the ideas that you put out which could still be adopted if um, people want to stop this European Parliament becoming a a self-hating parliament that destroys the European Union and its ability to be a a force on the world stage from the inside. 
Um, well, I think the first thing to say is that um, the worst thing we could possibly do is assume that this is a foregone conclusion and that, um, or that you know, that the fight's um, basically lost before the battle's even started. Um, because one of the really um, critical factors in determining what the outcome is going to be is, of course, turnout. And I think it would be incredibly damaging if pro-Europeans thought, well, you know, what difference is my vote going to make against this tidal wave of, um, of anti-European voters? So our message is that, that that is not the case, that... Um, these, that, that there are major risks at stake, but these things hang slightly in the balance. So, you know, every pro-European vote counts. In terms of um, how, you know, a, a sort of a strategy for fighting back beyond pro-Europeans voting is that firstly, there's a need to understand that, as Pavel has set out, um, the anti-European parties are, are many, um, but they're varied. And there is some common, common ground um, between them. And I think this idea that I highlighted of um, a Europe of nation states is, is sort of one of the unifying ideas. But when you get into specific policy areas, um, there's quite a lot of clear blue water between different parties. If we take, for example, the issue of migration, which is said to unite a lot of anti-European parties. In fact, if you look at policy solutions, um, it's very different. You've got um, the Italian government pushing very hard for a European solution, uh, which includes relocation of of immigrants from external border states to other countries um, in the EU. Um, And then you've got um, the Hungarian and Polish governments um, and, and Sorry, I should say that um, all of these governments are made up of parties that we're talking about as anti-Europeans in this context, um, who, who are actually arguing um, against the relocation and, and arguing that this is actually more about national borders um, being strengthened. So um, I think highlighting the differences um, between um, the parties is, is critical. Secondly, I think um, it's important that, that we demonstrate that there are real-world costs to a vote for the anti-European parties. We've seen this increasing trend in national elections in Europe over the um, over the past few years, um, where voters are more willing to vote against the status quo, and they're putting more faith in these new insurgent political forces. Um, I think that the, the, the kind of the purpose of the manifesto we've put together as a tool is to show that um, this is not just kind of um, a vote thrown into the wind. This is a direct vote which could facilitate some of these um, very damaging policies coming to light. And so it's important that um, uh, the, the voters across Europe understand. Um, that if they do care about issues like climate change, um, then um, then they maybe need to think twice about whether the anti-European party is the right one for, ones for them. And then thirdly, um, I think it's important to understand in each national um, context what is the most valuable election for pro-Europeans to fight. And that may not be, in every setting, one about this being an existential battle for the future of Europe. That may not be the sort of the way that, that many pro-European voters actually see the world, and it might be more valuable to focus on the values that are at stake, the issues that are at stake in terms of the prosperity agenda, the issues that are at stake in terms of the tax justice agenda, or indeed the climate agenda, as I've mentioned. And so framing the discussion in the right way, I think, is going to be quite crucial for mobilising the pro-European vote, which will be so important. And just to, just to clarify, it's, it's not about a PR exercise of just framing the uh, debate uh, differently. We really believe that uh, if we interpret the current polls where the several mainstream parties are, are losing their percentage points while other 
including anti-European parties are, are rising, it's because there is also some sort of legitimate discontent or disillusion which needs to be addressed. So that's why we say that that it's it's actually a moment for the pro-European parties to better listen to the uh, citizens and to re-establish a connection with uh, them. I, I'm looking at the situation in Poland, which is my country of, of, of origin, and uh, where I see that this is actually a very important vote uh, also for the national political context, because we have parliamentary elections in uh, just half year, uh, and uh, whoever wins the European parliamentary elections will find uh, itself in a poll position to winning also the next national uh, parliamentary voting. Uh, and therefore, it increases the stakes for the democratic opposition. But for the moment, they are mostly shouting uh, poll exit uh, risk, saying that uh, law and justice is leading Poland out from uh, uh, Europe, which uh, is uh, possible, but it, it, it's not certain. So uh, if if the Polish opposition is supposed to uh, win those elections and then find itself in a better position to take over the power in Poland, they cannot just shout uh, uh, poll exit, but they also need to uh, explain to voters that actually they are able to uh, defend Polish interests in in the European Union against the background in which the Polish citizens are increasingly feeling that uh, uh, the European integration is going in a direction which is not aligned with uh, with uh, Poland's uh, national interest on energy, defense, migration and eurozone. And therefore, uh, the Polish Position might have to uh, engage in a di- discussion about redefinition of Polish interests in that context. Okay, so if people are interested in finding out more about these elections, including country by country surveys of what the electoral landscape looks like, I warmly recommend that you head straight to ECFR's website, which is at www.ecfr.eu. And you will find a link on the front page, both to this report um, and also to uh, a page where we are going to increasingly be adding data in the weeks and months ahead as we move towards these elections. Because ECFR has also started a massive um, polling project in 14 different EU member states where we're going to explore how the world looks to European citizens in the run-up to and in the immediate aftermath of of, uh, the European elections this May. Our idea is to try and identify what the key battlegrounds are for parties and how that will affect Europe's ability to pursue its agenda on the the world stage. But for now, um, I think we've uh, covered some of the big themes in this fascinating report. Um, We have one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Susie, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? Well, um, I've got a bit of a one-track mind at the moment regarding the European Parliament elections. And as part of um, uh, our surveying work going forward, we are um, trying to look at um, the underlying sort of feelings and attitudes um, which are driving the increasing support for um, insurgent parties across Europe. And as part of that, on the recommendation of our council member, Adam Lurie, I'm reading a couple of books by William Davis, The Happiness Industry and Nervous States, How Feeling Took Over the World, to, to, to get under um, what is going on emotionally in Europe and um, as part of us trying to sort of build up an emotional map of, of, of the European Union at the moment. What about you, Pavel? I've just read uh, Bourgeois Equality, which is the third part uh, of a trilogy by an American economist, Deidre McClaskey, in which she demonstrated that the great enrichment of the last two centuries happened thanks to ideas 
rather than the capital accumulation or specific set of institutions. Uh, and no notably, she points out to a shift in the attitude towards doing business and making gains, which uh, used to be seen as sinful, uh, but uh, that started to change in the Netherlands sometime at the beginning of the 17th century and then spread to Britain, Northwestern Europe and uh, elsewhere, leading to a great enrichment, according to McCluskey. But she also inspired me to uh, read currently Adam Smith's less known book, uh, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, which is about virtues and uh, that. Uh, Great enrichment is not about uh, being prudent only, but also displaying several other virtues. So I recommend both of them, Smith and McCluskey. Great. Well, I also, uh, if you're looking at the, the history of capitalism, I've uh, been looking at its future. I've just started a new book called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, The Fight for a Human Future, The New Frontier of Power by Shoshana Zubov, where she... Uh, tries to look at how uh, the nature of capitalism has been changed by the, the digital economy and uh, is looking at some of the, the implications for what kind of world we, we live in. It's quite uh, frightening stuff. But for now, what I would recommend you do is read the 2019 European elections, how anti-Europeans plan to wreck Europe and what can be done to stop it, which, as I said, will be at our website, which is www.ecfr.eu. If you've enjoyed listening to us, please do tweet about us, write about us on your Facebook page or ours. And above all, go to the platform that you're using to listen to this and leave us a rating or review as it will help bring other people into the magic circle of people who enjoy the world in 30 minutes. But for now, from Susie Dennison, Pavel Zaka, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Jonathan Hakenbrosch, and our editor is Wiebke Evering. Mm-hmm.